This is Paige Twenner with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Bill Eisenberg, Chief Medical Officer at Sutter Health. Uh, Dr. Eisenberg, could you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and work experience? Sure, and good morning. Uh, my name is Bill Eisenberg, as Paige mentioned, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer at Sutter Health. Sutter Health is a large healthcare system in Northern California, an integrated healthcare system with 22 hospitals and a large number of ambulatory clinics, ambulatory surgery centers, walk-in care clinics distributed throughout Northern California in half of the counties in the state of California. We care for about three and a half million patients, so 1% of the U.S. population. Uh, and I'm delighted to be given the privilege of serving as the chief medical officer there. I'm an obstetrician gynecologist by training one of the best specialties in medicine as far as I'm concerned, because who can argue with the fact that seeing the miracle of birth occur every day as part of your job isn't one of the best things going. Um, but I'm really excited about many aspects of medicine, especially high reliability care for our patients. And at Sutter Health, we have been embarked over the last decade on equity of care. And so I'd like to spend a little bit of time this morning, Paige, talking about yeah, so uh, with equity of care, what specific, um, you know, topics or issues are you most concerned with, with equity? Well, you know, if we think about it, we can look at numbers, and I mentioned three and a half million patients. I can talk about the percentage of those who are hospitalized that, let's say in my specialty, OBGYN, what percentage of those women end up having cesarean sections? And I can give you a number of all of the women who deliver and tell you that 21% of them had a cesarean section. And maybe it's okay for me to say, that's great, that's better than the national average and increases the likelihood of successful first and second year of life for the baby and fast recovery for the mom. But if I actually use a lens of health equity and I find out that, in fact, our Hispanic population has a far higher number or our African-American population has a far higher number than 21% and our white population has a lower number than that, then it tells me that maybe we're not actually rendering care that is equitable and getting those babies off to an equitable start. So. I feel it's really important when we look at statistics in delivery of care and look at outcomes that we actually want to be seeing equitable outcomes, not equal delivery of care. And that's kind of a hard concept for many people to think about. It may mean that we have to distribute care in a way that's differential on the input side so that on the output side, we get equal outcomes for different groups. What sort of different input care are you imagining? Well, you know, we're all just sort of emerging after the last two and a half years of COVID. Um, remember when we first had availability of vaccines and there was a lot of conversation all across the country about, well, we should probably get a 70% vaccination rate so that we can enjoy what's called herd immunity. Remember that conversation page? That was in, across all the newspapers, right? Through our Institute of Advancing Health Equity, we actually discovered that because of social drivers of health, that is 
housing, availability of resources, differential health care, that in fact, we could probably vaccinate 60% of the white population, but we'd need to vaccinate upwards of 80% of the Hispanic population and more than 75, nearing 80% of the black population to actually enjoy herd immunity. This enabled us as a healthcare organization to actually do specialized outreach in those communities so that we could get the level of vaccination to a high enough point that in California, we ended up having some of the best outcomes having to deal with COVID. So it's, it's efforts like that to examine what will it take to get equal outcomes on the input side of that equation. I understand, yeah. I um, remember how much of a hot topic that uh, herd immunity uh, kind of catchphrase was in the early days of the pandemic and now it kind of just seems like a holy grail, I guess. Yeah. Well, another example was um, early on in the pandemic, I don't know what it was like for people across the country, but here in California, a headline, I read it early in the springtime, I guess it was, of 2020, and it came out on a weekend and it said, which profession in California has the highest incidence of COVID? I'm, I was very keen to see what that was. I thought maybe it's going to be healthcare workers or something like that. I was afraid it would be healthcare workers, frankly. And in fact, it said short order cooks. I was sort of scratching my head and I thought, how could a short order cook being exposed over a hot stove and vents and things like that? What's the story there? And nobody in the article, the authors of the article actually hit on what it was, which is here in California, most of the short order cooks are of the Latinx community. And in fact, we then found out that that was the single largest community who, due to situations of housing, uh, interactions with you know multifamilies living together, many, many factors contributed to the Latinx community being impacted by COVID more than any of our other ethnic groups here in the state of California. So you shouldn't make the conclusion that it's based on a job. It's based on who's occupying. Right, I understand. When we're talking kind of generally about health equity and uh, hospitals and healthcare's efforts to equalize, right? Um, and like you said, if you want to see the miracle of birth um, every day, and you don't want it to be distracted by you know these that awful percentage and uh, different rates among different races. I'm curious, what do you think is kind of missing from these conversations about health equity or even missing in their action plans? Well, let me give an example in my own specialty again, Paige. As an OBGYN, there's a sort of a, a rough estimate that during the course of a woman's 40 weeks of pregnancy, she should probably be seen somewhere between 13 and 15 times in the office before I see her in the hospital to deliver the baby. Now, we could say that every woman should come in and have that same number, that equal number of interactions with a clinician. But if in fact there's a patient of mine who has lots of resources, is well plugged in, 
has had has had good health care throughout her entire life, is a regular runner and has a good diet and has a job that enables her to have all the resources. In fact, I may be able to see her fewer than 13 or 15 times. I could have some interval visits with her, even via virtual visits on an iPad. You know, we have capabilities now to take blood pressures and actually do dipsticks of urine at people's homes so that they don't need to drive into an office and find a parking spot and, you know, pack up the kids and all the stressors of that. They can do all of this virtually. Whereas I could have another woman who has family history of diabetes, has poor eating habits, has little access to food, and I find out that she's actually already filling sugar in her urine when I do the dipstick, I need to say, you know what, maybe I need to see her more than 13 to 15 times in that pregnancy. Maybe those visits that were freed up by the other woman, because I could see her virtually, can be devoted to this new woman who actually needs more attention. So it's not equal attention during the course of it. It's modifying the attention to distribute it so that at the end, there's equal outcomes. So keeping long-term priorities, but uh, shifting kind of the smaller term or shorter term ones. Right, right. It, you know, it, I would be doing a disservice to that second woman if, in fact, I didn't aggressively manage her what might be gestational diabetes and increased weight gain for both her and the baby running the risks of a need for an emergent cesarean section or a baby that's too large to fit through her pelvis at delivery. Those kinds of things are really important because we want to have that baby have uh, a great start to life, and the best start is, you know, through a normal birth. Right, right. And when we're talking about, uh, you know, these disparities uh, that the pandemic, disparities in health equity, the pandemic exposed, uh, a lot of hospitals and large health systems are losing a lot of money this year, uh, kind of reporting uh, historic losses. So how do you feel healthcare systems can work on these, you know, diversity um, and inclusion efforts, as well as, you know, maintain their bottom line and stay operating? You know, it's a really good question. In fact, I was I was just back in Washington, D.C. a week ago where leaders of several health, large healthcare systems met with Secretary Becerra, and we were lamenting the, the situation with healthcare economics right now. As, as your publication just shared, I think at the time we were meeting, 71 hospitals had closed across the country in the last weeks, um, which is very, very concerning for healthcare populations. And, um, you know, we were thinking, how can we advance these causes effectively when there are hospitals that are closing? I think that the, the new move in the healthcare landscape toward value-based care is one of the most important changes that we should all aggressively embrace and pursue, meaning we have to understand not just the medical conditions that our patients may suffer from, but we also have to look at very aggressively the social drivers of health 
those aspects that heretofore haven't been examined closely, but definitely contribute to how effective those things we doctors and nurses can do through our bag of tricks uh, will actually work. I mean, if, if you have somebody hospitalized for pneumonia and you do the very best you can through the wonders of modern medicine to help them heal, but when it comes time for discharge, their home is under a viaduct because they actually don't have a home or their support system is virtually non-existent because they have decided that they're gay or lesbian and their family doesn't support them and it out, or they have a drug habit, it makes it much more challenging for them to be successful as they're discharged. So these, these social pieces are so important to our long-term success. And in value-based care systems, we look at the totality of the patient, not only their medical issues, but their social construct as well do as much as we can to address those issues as well as addressing their When it comes to these social drivers of health, as you put it, what are you most excited about right now? Or what's um, kind of been, what murmurs have you been hearing about that you're kind of excited about? Well, you know, I think that one of the things that is most helpful is even in situations where people don't have access to a lot of of these resources, most everybody these days has access to phones. In fact, uh, that's one of the nicest things that we can take advantage of is the, the digital revolution that has happened over the last several decades. And it has been a real help for us in healthcare because now when people who might be living in fringe fringes of a variety of different social drivers often do have a health do have a access to a phone and we can offer them care through digital channels that young people young people with mental health issues having gone through the past two and a half years of the of the covid pandemic are really suffering and yet they feel quite comfortable turning to us or help with their mental health issues. And they do that through virtual visits using their phone. So I'm really excited about how that has expanded so thoroughly. I do think that we're spending a lot more time on figuring out ways of partnering with our community partners, actually provide those support systems where they may, they may not be found within an individual's family, but can be found within an individual's community. When I mentioned the outreach we did for the COVID vaccination, a lot of that was done through community partnerships that we have come to really value. Yeah, I think those are definitely uh, silver lining lessons. Um, a lot of healthcare has learned over the past two and a half years, uh, just because COVID-19 forced everyone to pivot uh, what they thought was standard. Is there anything else uh, that you'd like to add? You know, I'd like to, I think the one piece that I'd like to make people think about is 
the incredible opportunity we have to leverage, I don't want to call it artificial intelligence. I, I prefer to call it augmented intelligence. It's still AI. But there are so many new things that are growing out of the innovation hotbeds of the country, close to us here in, in California, Silicon Valley. Um, there are companies that are helping us look at x-rays, giving a second second eye view to a radiologist look to help identify emerging lesions? Are there ways that we can more aggressively leverage EICUs? We do it quite well here in, at Center Health. I mean, we can have small hospitals that don't even have round the clock, can't afford to have, or can't even hire intensive care doctors uh, to cover their ICUs 24 hours a day, and yet we can have eyes and ears and cameras in the sky to see those patients from remote sites, manage them very effectively uh, through quite difficult illnesses. We need to really maximize the use of AI and electronic solutions to the delivery of healthcare. It doesn't necessarily need to be a live person with their own personal hands patient. We're seeing so much revolution using robotic surgery, um, so many different things, Paige, that should have us all excited about the future of healthcare. Great, Dr. Eisenberg, it was a pleasure speaking with you today, um, and I really look forward to connecting with you again soon, whether it's about uh, health equity, um, new advancements in augmented reality, or um, anything else that you know pops up in the next few months or years. Paige, feel free to give us a call anytime. We're delighted to share uh, our views and uh, excited to talk about the future of healthcare in America.